Thank you, Kevin. Thank you, Dan. Thank you so much. And uh, I think around 11.30 I'll have this microphone right. Wow. That's the problem from switching from that mic and those earpieces to this thing. You'd think it wouldn't be difficult for a person, but for me, it is. Good morning, everybody. It is really good to see you again. If you will turn in your Bibles to James, I want to continue our series. We're in the first part of chapter 2, reading 13 verses in the first part here of chapter 2. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones, aren't they the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blasphemy the horrible, excuse me, the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy." Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's just talk about that first verse. You got to remember, James is talking to his brothers and sisters, okay? And he's making a connection with them like he does throughout this book. You know, they're in the same boat. Of course, James is in Jerusalem, and his readers, his audience, of course, are outside there on the edges of Palestine, poverty-stricken, fleeing persecution. You got to remember who we're talking about here. And he's saying to them, listen, you that hold the faith, and we know what faith they're talking about. He says, the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, but then he says, the Lord of glory. This takes us all the way back to the Old Testament, that Shekinah glory, that glory where God dwelt in the temple. And you could see the evidence, right, of God's glory. And then it was manifested in Jesus Christ himself as he walked this earth. We saw that glory. So we're holding the faith. James is talking to an audience that's holding the faith. And the Lord Jesus and the Lord of glory, I want you to understand that first. But listen, if you, and you guys know that the book of James is about spiritual maturity, right, growth. If we are to be consistent in Christian living, 
which I think we all are. That's why we're here every Sunday. If we are to be consistent in Christian living, we have to look back to the first chapter of James. Hearing God's word and just talking about God's word does not replace doing God's word, okay? In our text today, we're going to find that James is applying many, many of the key ideas from this first chapter to a very specific situation. And this is the sin of partiality, or favoritism, if you will. And here in Scripture, it's pointing to the discrimination of the poor within this Christian community, this particular community. So, in order to practice God's word, right, in order to be a doer, James presents a little test to his audience. And the same thing for us, okay? You have two men that enter the doors to our church. You have two men that enter. One is poor and one is rich. We'll get to that in a minute, how we know that. One is poor and one is rich. Next, how are they treated? This is the test. Now, the emphasis devoted to this topic, guys, suggests that this was a very real problem during this time. This was a real issue for his readers. So the treatment that the rich man receives stands in stark contrast You hear that? It stands in stark contrast to God's perspective of the poor. The ones that he has chosen to be rich in faith. In other words, James is pointing out that the response to the poor man is contrary to the gracious and loving care that God shows that poor man. So, if God is honoring the poor, shouldn't the community of believers that he is addressing also be honoring the poor, especially since he's talking to the poor? Question. Our behavior, you and me, today. Our behavior towards people. Let me rephrase that. Our behavior towards people. Does it indicate or reveal what we really believe about God? Think about that for a second. Does it really indicate what we believe about God? Think about how you treat others. Because I'm going to tell you some, just a couple excuses. I'll give you three excuses. Dismissive. Let's talk about being dismissive of Scripture. I was raised a certain way. I was brought up, and this is how I was taught. Therefore, this is the only way. I have to dismiss this because this has to be right. Dismissive of Scripture. I can't get it all right. Pastor Mark, I can't get that all right. I'm focusing on this, and I'm focusing on this, and I'm going to work on this. I can't do it all, and the sin of partiality just doesn't seem that big a deal compared to the other things I'm going through. I can't get it all. And then, of course, I love this excuse. God, (laughs) God doesn't understand. Mark, this was written thousands of years ago. There's no way that this applies to today's culture. We've developed, we've evolved into something else. God can't really understand well, we are without excuse because in 1 John 4, verses 20 through 21, 1 John 4, 20 through 21 says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment, I want to put emphasis on that, this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Excuses are gone. Excuses are gone. Now, in Scripture, I love that James did this. Did you notice the externals that were presented? 
when the rich man walked in, they weren't just identified or labeled rich and poor. James went a little bit further, right? He gave us some externals. Uh, Let's see, the rich man had a gold ring and fine clothing, and that's how he was identified. The poor man, shabby clothing. And this is how, as James presented it, how we were looking at the externals of these people. And this is the problem. We as fallen humans, this is what we look to first, don't we? And this is what James is saying. He puts it, he goes, this is what you pay attention to. And we've all been guilty of looking at the externals of a person and then making judgment. If you think you're free and clear of that, you're in for a rude awakening as we dive deeper into this sermon. You know, it's true that in Jewish times, back in those days, uh, people were very uh, much, uh, they very much coveted, if you will, um, recognition. They loved their recognition. They loved their honor. They competed for praise. And boy, oh boy, this was very evident among the Pharisees. Now, but here's the thing. The command to love one's neighbor as yourself, the command to love one's neighbor as yourself, it requires, okay, a Christian to love poor neighbors as well. And this is what James is having to explain to his audience. You have to love the poor as well. Partiality and favoritism, folks, matter to God. It's not dismissive. It's not something you need to work on later. And God does understand. This is important to him. Even Jesus' enemies, while plotting against him, plotting against him, stated that Jesus was not swayed by men or appearances. He did not pay attention to what uh, they were on the outside, if you will. In Matthew twenty-two sixteen, Matthew twenty-two sixteen, and they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully and you do not care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances. Jesus was not swayed by man, especially on the outside. Why? Because God looks at the heart. A person's monetary wealth, right, their social status, what they have to offer does not impress God. Here's what it is, though, okay? It's all about the heart. It's all about the heart. And this is the heart of the matter for us today. This is the heart of the matter. You guys remember, I love this story. You remember the, uh, the story of the uh, widow's offering in Mark 12, the widow's offering Mark 12. You have uh, people were giving large sums. Jesus was sitting back and watching this. People were giving large sums. They were donating this huge amount of money. And Jesus saw this poor widow come up and gave what amounted to a penny, a penny. But he said, come here, disciples, get over here. I need you guys to sit and watch. Look at this. So he called them, and he calls disciples. He said, listen, i got to explain this to you. What she has just done, what she has just done, she has given more than all of them because she has given out of her poverty. She didn't give out of abundance like everybody else. She gave all she had out of her poverty. Folks, this is what Jesus looks at. This is all about heart. The sin of partiality is inconsistent with our faith. Remember those that hold the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory? I'm going to say it again. This is inconsistent with faith in Jesus Christ, who came to tear down the barriers of class, came to tear down the barriers of social status, race, gender, religion, skin color, how someone dresses. That's what James is pointing out. Tear that down. Yet we 
like to build those things back up. Why would God work so hard to tear all that down for us to only build it back up? Doesn't that make us kind of, doesn't that put us in his place? Make us a judge? Well, that's what James thinks. David, before David was anointed as king, they were lined up. And this is in Samuel, 1 Samuel, and Samuel's going through. And I love this. 1 Samuel uh, 16, 7. 1 Samuel 16, 7, before David's anointed, says this. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. See, the problem here with James' audience James's audience, however you say it. And the problem with us is that we make distinctions. And unfortunately, those distinctions that we make among ourselves, we become judges. And he doesn't stop there. He says judges with evil thoughts. Now, this is not me telling you that. This is scripture. Why? I gotta ask you this. And we're all guilty of it, okay? Let's get real. Why are we so prone to judge people by their past, right, or their present, and not look to their future. Why are we so prone to judge people? How do we know, and I'm asking this seriously, how do we know when and where God is doing his work on an individual? See, fallen humans have a tendency, listen to this, fallen humans have a tendency to view their sins as less significant than the sins of others, especially sins that they have not particularly committed. Let me share a story. Believe it or not, before going to Liberty, I attended a very prestigious and large uh, Bible college in Florida. I won't give you the name, but it's a certain denomination. And I attended this, and I was in a pastoral class one evening. This is where I physically went. There was about 25 men in this class. And the professor was an, uh, an administrative pastor. He wasn't a teaching or preaching pastor. He wasn't a care pastor. He was an administrative. Numbers, bills, things like that. And he was the professor of this particular class. And my goodness, this was so long ago. But he, one night, and I know he dug a hole, a deep hole he couldn't get out of. One night he started telling the 25 men, including myself, that if you've done this, and if you've done this, and if you committed this, you cannot deliver the message of God behind the pulpit. You cannot be a pastor. So we're looking around the room going, are you kidding me? Did he just say that? We're like, I- I'm paying for this. I took out loans for this. And he's saying we can't even use this? It was, it was chaos. And there was one guy in the back that was like, he said, oh, guys, 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 really cool, dude. He's like, don't worry about that. You gotta. He was overstepping that pastor because the pastor was wrong. That professor was wrong. He said, absolutely, don't listen to that. God works on us. God works in us. He doesn't know what's going on. He didn't know the issues. He didn't know the situations. He prejudged us based on the sins that he and his church counted as, oh no, that's that's (laughs) unforgivable. Paul could not have been a pastor in this class. And we were thinking, why doesn't he just walk out to the parking lot, grab rocks out of the driveway, right, and just start throwing them at us? I mean, because that's how we felt. It was a horrible, horrible situation. And we thought to ourselves, he doesn't know our hearts. He only 
is talking about things on the outside. And he didn't even know us really. And I ended up leaving that college, not only for that reason, but others. And I know some others did too. There was, there was some serious hurt from what was said. That man stopped. That man probably stopped a few good men from actively pers- uh, pursuing ministry because he wanted to become the judge. See, here's the problem. God calls us to mirror what we have received. You know, to give back what we have been given. And it's not judgment. It's mercy. There's mercy all over the place in this scripture. And so it's mercy, folks, that allows us to walk in obedience because we couldn't do it without it. It's mercy that allows us to walk in gospel freedom, gospel-powered freedom. It's mercy that allows us to walk under the law of liberty, as James puts it. Now, let me talk to you about this vacation I took because a lot of you probably think I was living it up. Last week, right, we took four days to the mountains. It was awesome. I'd do it all over again. But when we got there, there was no water pressure. It trickled. There was no internet, no Wi-Fi, no phone service. We were alone in these mountains, which was awesome, but still we were alone. We couldn't call anybody. We'd drive like 25 minutes away to contact the person watching our dogs, right? There was nothing we could do. Guess what? There was no air condition. I got to have my AC. Do you know how hard it is to sleep in 90 degree weather at night? So we walk into this beautiful cabin. It's huge. It sleeps like, what, 30 people? 30 people, Brittany, right? And we're like, wow, it's so cool, but it's so hot. Let's go back outside. I mean, it was hotter inside than it was outside. So I remember we were like, should we just go back home and just, you know, chill, relax in our house? I mean, we were really debating, should we go home? I was like, no, we've driven too far, and I'm a baby about driving, so we're staying. We may never come back. So we're in this cabin, and something remarkable happens. Each night, I'm trying to fall asleep in this 90-degree weather. We got this little fan blowing on me. We're doing the best we can, folks. I got this fan blowing hot air on me, and I mean, we're, I'm up till 2, 3 in the morning. There's just, you're not sleeping. And every stupid thing and dumb thing that I've ever done, every bad decision I've made, the floodgates open, and they start rolling in. And I'm not kidding you. By Tuesday night, I remember laughing out loud going, you've got to be kidding me. Because I didn't get to fantasize about rooms full of guitars. You know, I didn't get to have fun like that and not all the good stuff. Everything that came at me was all the dumb things that I have ever said. I'm talking about stuff in high school. All the stupid decisions I've made, the bad relationships. It was one after another. I do not know what was going on. I think it was detox, right? (laughs) Sweating it all out. And then I realized something. Holy cow, I am damaged. I can't fix it. There's no way I can fix this. The sentence is passed. I'm done. I looked at my life and went, holy cow, Mark Tanner, there's no way to come back from this. I don't know if you've ever felt like this. There's no way to come back from this. So I realized over and over the words grace and mercy. Grace and and mercy. And I began to realize how much mercy has been rained down upon me in my life to bring me to this place, this moment today, right? And I was so grateful. I was so grateful. Even in that horrible heat, I was so grateful that I got to walk under the law of liberty. And I bet you feel the same way. Sin has a way of keeping us in bondage. 
And all of a sudden you realize, wait a minute, I'm not in bondage at all. I am not in bondage. I have been freed, like our song today, Walking Free. I have been freed from this. And when I was going through this, I kept saying to myself, my goodness, how blessed am I to have somebody that will forgive all that and fix me himself. I was so grateful. And so, and so thinking about that mercy that was extended to me, which I was focused on this passage, I thought to myself, my goodness, let's, let's think about the word judge. Mark Tanner, how many times have you asked God to slide over or even replace him as judge? Same thing with you. How many times have you asked God, you know what, God, I got this. I saw who walked in. I'll handle this. How many times have we replaced God as judge? If a brother or sister in Christ enters our door, shouldn't we receive them because Christ is living in them? Yes. Shouldn't we receive a person who is not yet a Christian? Why? Well, number one, they're made in the image of our God. Number two, Christ died for them. You don't know when or where God is going to bring that person to their knees, to salvation. We don't know. That's God's work. Yet we say, you know what? God will handle this. We become judges. We become judges with evil thoughts. Our relationship, excuse me, our relationship between another person, right, and you and I is based on the love that stems from the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's where our connection is, folks. He is the bond. He is what ties us. He is what connects us to another. As Christians who know the word, I'm going to say this. I'm calling us all out. As Christians who know the word, shouldn't we understand that God can use the most unlikely person or people to glorify his name? If you don't know that, you have not read this book. Because God can use the most unlikely person to bring glory to his name. And I stand here before you today as that person as well. We don't know who God is working on. Let me say this. Jesus is greater than any sin, folks. Sometimes we place sin above Jesus. I believe that night that professor did that. Jesus is greater than any sin. He is greater than any obstacle that you and I see as a permanent wall that would keep someone from being drawn to God. Oh, they're never going to come to Jesus. They're never going to come to Jesus. The wall is too strong, it's too tall. There is no distance, there is no depth that can keep God away from performing his work upon a person of his choosing. It can't be done. God will triumph over any obstacle, yet we want to limit God's miraculous work, we want to limit it, and we want to replace him as judge. And this is why James is calling his readers out, and this is true for us today. And then he says this, has God not chosen Has God not chosen? Salvation is not earned by merit, folks. You can't earn it. You can't purchase it. And you know what else? It's not deserved. Salvation is not deserved. It's through his grace. It is through his grace to those that he chooses, those who cannot earn, those who do not deserve salvation. And guys, this salvation here is solely based on the work of Christ. That's it. You can't do anything about it. When I was laying there with the floodgates open, nothing I could do about what I've done. 
but the work of Christ. And, you know, if you remember back in the first part of James, verses 9 and 11, and I'm just going to kind of paraphrase here, verses 9 through 11, it says, Grace makes the poor man rich as he inherits the riches of God's grace. Do you hear that? The poor man inherits the riches of God's grace. And grace makes the rich man poor because he cannot depend on his wealth. Wealth doesn't matter. So we have this balance, you see. But please note something here. James is not advocating that the poor are guaranteed salvation simply because they are poor. (laughs) No. James is saying that the poor, right, those in these desperate economic situations are calling out to God in their distress, which illustrates all the more that they are rich in faith. That's what he's pointing out. See, back in these times, folks, it was a very simple thing for the rich to exploit the poor. Very simple. The rich could influence decisions in court, right, with their wealth, um, making them even richer, by the way, at the expense of the poor. And they took their land. They could take their homes. They could take their resources. The very things that allowed them to create income, they would take. So, you know, the poor were in a tight spot. They were in a very, very tight spot. When it came to the rich challenging them in court, It was a very bad situation. And James is calling out his brothers. He's calling out his brothers and sisters to not dishonor the poor. And why? Why are you dishonoring? Is it fear? I'm scared of what they will do to me? Their influence is so great, I am afraid of what they're going to do to me. Was it lust or want? You know, if I get in good with them, (laughs) I'm going to use this friendship. This relationship's going to pay me, right? What was it? Why? Were they showing so much peripheral treatment to the rich who continued to hurt and oppress them? Can you imagine giving preferential treatment to someone who's continuing to hurt and oppress you and blaspheming the name of your God? This is what was going on, and James is like, I don't get it. Why would you dishonor who God honors? You know? Why would you do that? I got two verses for you. Deuteronomy 10, 17, and 18. Deuteronomy 10, 17, and 18. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and, the, and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Again, these are the people that would be vulnerable in these times. Right? These people were the, op- the ones open to attack, the vulnerable. But here God is loving on them. What about this one? Leviticus 19.15. Leviticus 19.15. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. We're getting the essence here of how our God sees things, his perspective. And these people would have known this text. James may have based it on Leviticus 19.15 uh, here. So he goes on to talk about this royal law. Royal law. It's the law given to us by the king, right? It's the royal law that describes the whole body of commandments that govern the people who belong to God's kingdom. The royal law. And what is it? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Oh, come on. You know how hard that is to love someone else as yourself. Come on, right? But here's the royal law being spoken to us again. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Remember, the parable of the Good uh, Samaritan, that's a famous parable. I think everybody knows that. In uh, Luke 10, 
there is a lawyer that, no, not a verse yet. <laughs> That's good. You're on the ball, though. In Luke 10, um, there's a lawyer who asked Jesus, well, who's my neighbor? Jesus, who's my neighbor, right? So Jesus goes to this parable of this good Samaritan, wonderful parable. And towards the end, he asked the guy, so who is it? And in Luke 10, 37, yes, Luke 10, 37, he said, the one who showed him mercy, and Jesus said to him, yeah, you go and do likewise. There was your answer. See, James tells us that we are doing well if we are truly practicing this. You're doing well. But if not, we are sinning by practicing partiality, and guess what? You are convicted as transgressors. And here's the rude awakening. Here'd be the rude awakening for that professor from years and years ago, which I hope he asked for forgiveness for. Here's the rude awakening. James is telling us something very important. He is telling us and his readers that the law, in its wholeness, the indivisible whole of the law, if one part is violated, the whole of the law is violated. In other words, breaking one part of the law, breaking one commandment, breaking one commandment, incurs guilt for the law as a whole. And James attacks the idea that a person can disobey a particular portion of the law, right, and avoid a guilty verdict. He attacks that. The lawgiver has spoken. He is the lawgiver. And this is why, this is why, listen folks, this is why grace and mercy becomes so prevalent. Our Jesus, our Lord of glory, fulfilled that law. He completed that law for us so that we could walk under the law of liberty. This is why in our lives, grace and mercy, these words should be prevalent because we live under a new covenant. This is the only way we get to walk in what James calls the law of liberty. In receiving what we deserve, you hear me? In receiving what we deserve, we would not be able to stand before God. I hope you know that. However, we are receiving kindness and forgiveness from God. He is delivering us mercy that saves. And these commandments are from God, right, who is speaking to us. Don't even think just about written. These are God-breathed words. God is speaking to you. To ignore or disobey these spoken commandments is to disobey God, rendering a person guilty. That professor may not have committed certain things, but if for one second he thought he was above the law, right, or that he had never sinned, he's fooling himself. And we know James is also about self-deception, right, looking in that mirror. We have to be accountable to who we are and the reality of the mercy and grace we have been shown and then shower others with that. And he brings up some heavy hitters, folks. Murder and adultery. Here's the big ones. Here's where people that fail in their view of sin. To see these heavier commandments as outweighing the lighter commandments, right? When the truth is this, failing at one, again, renders a person guilty. And here's something for you. A demanding love, the demanding love God is calling us to, is no light commandment. To love someone as yourself is no light commandment at all. We'll throw that one up there with murder and adultery. Showing mercy is just what this love command requires. That's what's required, mercy. Think of the parable. I know a lot of pastors use this, but the parable of the unforgiving servant. And found in Matthew 18. 
The parable of the unforgiving servant. What a parable. Here you have this guy, the king settling accounts, and he has, there's this guy that owes so much money, he couldn't pay it back in this lifetime, and if there were more lifetimes, he couldn't pay him back then either. He owed so much, it was beyond payback. And he pleaded with the king, and the king said, you know what, I'm going to forgive your debt. Your debt is great. Forgiven. The man walked free, walking free. I did not play in that song because of this. That was awesome. Walking free, right? And now he finds a fellow servant of his. And he says, you owe me a few bucks. You owe me some money. Not much. Not much. He had that man because he couldn't pay him back thrown in jail until it could be paid, the debt. The king found out. And you already know where I'm going with this. And said, how dare you? I forgave you such a great debt and you can't forgive him that little bit? Now you go to jail until you can pay me off. That's the parable of that unforgiving servant. And it really brings home the message today that we have been forgiven so much. Remember my vacation with all the stuff that kept coming in? I have forgiven so much. You've been forgiven of so much. Where is the mercy? James, if you look back in James here, look at verses 12 and 13 of chapter 2. We already read it, but let's look at it. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Worldly culture is marked by distinctions, but people, folks, people are of equal worth in the sight of God. We're the one that makes the distinctions. James is focusing, listen, and this is the truth. I know James is focusing on the sin of partiality when it comes to economics, right? The rich and the poor. But we all know that there are many kinds of sinful partiality. We're not just talking about economics here. There's many forms of sinful partiality. We are not limited to the rich and poor. When we exercise, when we exercise partiality, folks, which is sinful, we are failing to show love to our neighbors as ourselves. Whether we do it knowingly or unknowingly, we are failing at this. It was a command given to us by our God. He spoke this to us. Let me ask you this. Oh, I don't like this question at all, but I'm going to ask it. Are we welcoming those who enter our doors, who enter our lives, as if that visitor was Christ himself? Think about that. Are we welcoming visitors into our life as if it was Christ himself? In Matthew 25, 35 through 40. Matthew 25, 35 through 40. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of my brothers, you did it to me. Do we believe all of the Bible? Do we believe all of the Bible? Or are our beliefs only limited to what we practice? Oh man, that hurts. Are our beliefs only limited to what we practice? Can someone look at you and go, well, he's really good at that particular thing, but what about all of this? 
Remember, we don't have excuses. You can't not love your brother because then there's no love for God. We read that in the very beginning. So God can change our hearts. God can change our hearts, and he can give us the desire to do his will as we walk under the law of liberty. Now, in this command, folks, let me get this straight with you real quick. This command is an act of the will. This is not about emotions. Please keep your emotions at the door. This is not about manufacturing an emotion to attach to an act. This is an act of the will. And this kind of love, this kind of love does not mean that you must like and agree with everything that someone says. Please understand that. Well, you really like that sin, and I got a love on you, so I love... No! You do not have to like or agree with the person, right? That's not the kind of love I'm talking about. The kind of Christian love that I'm talking about means treating another like God is and has treated you. That's what I'm talking about. We all have disagreements. Hey, I know I'm not all, everybody here's cup of tea, and you may not be my cup of tea. Now I want tea. So, what I'm getting at is this. To love another is to treat another like God is treating you. This is a test of our faith. This is the reality for the Christian. How do we treat other people? Remember this scripture day as you leave. Remember the scripture, the very last verse in James 2.13. For judgment is without mercy. It's without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. I love that that part of James ends with those words. Mercy triumphs over judgment. I know that because it's happening in my life personally, and I hope it's happening in your life. Now we need to take that and apply it to the others that are entering our lives. This is the heart of the matter. Allowing others the same mercy that you have been shown. Excuse me, that you have been shown. And this is by loving, them, uh, loving these people as yourselves. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as always, we are grateful to your word. We are so grateful for your word. Lord, a lot of times when we read scripture, it hits us hard. It hits us hard. We see and feel the conviction of the sin in our life. We see and feel the sin that continually disconnects us from you. And Father, we want to pay attention to your word because we know this is life-changing. It's all about heart. We know what you see, God. So we're asking for renewed and clean hearts and let these hearts be able to love others. Let us show the evidence of loving others as ourselves. You have commanded this. You have spoken this to us. Father, whoever enters the doors to this church, whoever enters the doors to our lives, allow us, Father, work on us so that we can receive them as if we were receiving you as a visitor. Give us that kind of perspective, a godly perspective, a lens to look through that shows and reveals the love, the Christian love, that you want us to extend and to shower upon another person. That's what we're praying for, Lord. I pray for this church right now that our doors are open to everybody, Father. Hey, Lord Jesus, we know that this faith, the faith we hold, is inclusive. We've talked about this. 
everybody can come in. But we know that the faith itself is exclusive because it's just about you. It is just about you. You are the one who saves us. You are the one who cleanses us. You are the one who makes us better and better and better, preparing us for an eternity with you. So Father, just grab our hearts. Lord, we pray you just wrench the filth out of them. Cleanse us of these sins that keep us from loving another person, especially the sins of partiality, Lord. And this is becoming more and more problem in our church, not even in the world, in our church. In the church as a whole, globally, we are seeing more and more sins of partiality between leadership, between members in the congregation. There's divisiveness. God, I pray for restoration for this church and for your church as a whole. I pray, Lord, that we take it so seriously, this sin of partiality, where we label it and put it right up there with murder and adultery. Father, let us focus on the whole of your law. Let us please understand that not only did you fulfill the law, not only did you fulfill the law, you allow us now to walk under the liberty of this new covenant you've given us. And it's all about grace, and it's all about mercy. Remind us every day, Lord, as we have encounters with people. Remind us of that. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.